Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level Low power frequency radio modulation The big sound from underground another pirate No change, change without, without struggle. struggle No one in power ain't giving up nothing No change without struggle No one in power W-O-R-T, 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am Esti Dinur. And uh, gardeners, how does your garden grow in this climate change time? Mine has been complaining, protesting, striking, refusing to produce. And so I invited today Sally Morgan, who is a botanist with a lifelong interest in gardening. She's written articles and books on food, farming, and environment, and owns an organic farmer farm in Somerset, the UK, where she is right now. And she teaches courses there on small farming. Sally is the editor of Organic Farming Magazine and gives talks on various garden and farm-related subjects across the United Kingdom. And um, she has written, together with Kim Stoddard, the book The Climate Change Garden, Down-to-Earth Advice for Growing a Resilient Garden. Thank you so much, Sally, for joining us today. I'm delighted to join you and I'm sat in Somerset where we're having a very hot day, so very timely. Uh, well, so I wanted to start by telling you about how things are here in Wisconsin. Generally speaking, Wisconsin means water. Uh, Minnesota, who's near us, is known as the state of 1,000 lakes, and we are told that Wisconsin actually has even more lakes. We have snow in winter, which I hate, but I suppose there's something good about that. We have rain in summer, generally speaking, but not this year. Um, we had rain two days ago, which was an amazing and wonderful and blissful event because we have not had rain since May 18. Otherwise, we had a few events of three drops falling and that is it. It's been very, very hot. Um, just before the rain, it was announced that our county is in severe drought. Um, seeds in my garden have not been producing, or perhaps, you know, they just uh, shot some uh, little shoots and creatures ate them before I even saw them because the creatures are multitude this year and they want to eat everything and also when I water my garden they go and uh, destroy plants because I suppose they want water and we'll talk more about that in a minute. Uh, I've seen very few monarch butterflies, I've seen even fewer other butterflies so things are different, they're challenging, and um, we want to hear your wisdom about uh, what can be done. There is a silver lining, um, maybe, I hope that my lawn will die altogether, <laughs> because originally when I bought my house 20 years ago, I pulled the lawn from the front yard and created a garden, but I still have a lot of lawn in my backyard. So uh, just your general comment to what I've said so far. Um, I could almost say exactly the same for what has happened here. Um, we didn't have rain for six weeks um, from the beginning of May through to last week where we had a couple of deluges. Um, we have had... Poor germination of the seeds, uh, too many pests, um, no ladybugs, no other natural predators on site. Um, the only good thing I can tell you that when the rain came, all of a sudden the natural predators have arrived and um, my plants are covered in ladybugs. So um, 
it's sort of reversing itself at the moment but i can i can completely understand and get it right at the beginning of the growing season just when you need a little bit of moisture in the soil um your deficit and i think this abnormal pattern uh, of weather sadly is what we have to get used to we have to be quite resilient um and experimental uh, and try out things and be prepared for failures unfortunately yeah. yeah well i have to correct myself apparently i said um that minnesota is the land of thousand lakes it's actually the land of ten thousand lakes and we have even more so 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 they say so um so considering we don't know what's coming right i mean this year it's uh drought and heat and next year it may be flooding which we've had too a few years ago um what can we do how how do we prepare and have a more resilient garden without knowing where it's going um it is tricky but what i always start with saying to people is that your soil is your most important asset in your garden your yard and and you if you can get healthy soil then you can have healthy plants and i think when you've got healthy plants it's important to um that gives you the resistance they're not so stressed and i think when plants get stressed they're more vulnerable to whatever the climate is going to throw at them so nice healthy soil lots of soil organic matter lots of soil life um, well protected at this time of year so i've been mulching all my soil um, covering it with organic matter to keep that soil in the ground where it's needed by the plant roots um, and trying to keep my plants as stress-free as possible um, and long term i'm looking at plants that perhaps aren't too specialist in nature that they're more of a generic plant that can cope with everything that's thrown at it rather than very fussy plants that only like particular types of conditions which may change from year to year so it's tricky but if we can keep our soils healthy i think it puts us in a very good stead for the future mm-hmm. and um did you mention compost by the way i'm not sure you did no but compost is good for mulching as well and how do you make compost for for our listeners who are not experienced gardeners yeah so various ways of making compost um i take the lazy approach which is basically a compost bin and i fill it with a mix of green materials and brown materials so 50-50 roughly green materials are fresh weeds and stuff out the soil um bits of things i've chopped off brown stuff can be anything from dead twigs and leaves through to cardboard um and bits of wood even and i mix those all up and i put them in a container uh, i could put them in a big plastic bag i could literally leave them in the pile in the corner of the garden they will do their stuff um if you don't touch your pile um it will take much longer if you turn your pile every so often and keep it aerated the decomposition will happen more quickly um and you do want to water it occasionally because dry compost doesn't rot down as quickly as a damper compost um but really it is dead easy a mix of materials pile it all up pop a cover on the top perhaps to keep it all in place keep the water off so it doesn't get waterlogged um and just let nature do the best and hopefully in six to nine months probably a year you can have a good look and there's some lovely stuff that you can use as mulch on your on your soils and as the basis for your own potting media that you might want to use when potting up plants and things Yeah, a friend came over to help me get my uh, compost just a few days ago and um we were both absolutely amazed at the amount of compost and and how beautiful it is. It's it's such it's amazing soil, right? It's it's fluffy and airy and it smells so good and uh it's I I also take the lazy approach. It's basically, you know, whatever I don't use in my kitchen and um other stuff from the garden and um yeah it's it's very easy and and what you get is absolutely amazing and I guess that helps the resilience 
Yes, and the and the other thing you can do to help your composts is to inoculate it with some really useful microbes. So if you've got a bit of old compost and you're starting a new compost pile, then I would mix in some of the old stuff or even take some soil, um, maybe in a woodland area, you could take a little handful of soil that come with lots of useful microbes that will get really healthy soil going. So things like that are quite useful, but it, yeah, leave it and the more you turn it the quicker it will happen and some people say it's, they have this sort of horrible mess and it's all gone smelly and wet and it's probably because you've put too much green material on it like uh, lawn clippings and things um, so you need that good mix and sometimes you know just ripping up a piece of cardboard is brilliant it gets rid of the cardboard um, all mulches all rots down in your pile um, and so you're really recycling everything on site which is so important to keep the waste down from your garden and to recycle everything, um, closed loop as we call it, um, to make best use of everything in the garden. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned keeping the plants stress-free and I wonder what that means. How do you keep them stress-free when the environment is so stressful? I think to start with, if you've got a good soil, that helps because the soil is full of soil organisms, particularly fungi that have this amazing relationship, the mycorrhizae that will have relationship with the roots of your plants. I think also to put the plant in the right place, to plant it where it's going to thrive. I think increasingly now we need to look at plant labels to see where they like to grow. So there's no point putting um, something that likes a damp, shady place in a in a sunny place and so often I go around gardens and I think well you haven't looked at the plant label because that plant is not great for where you planted it and that will straight away stress the plant out Um, and to keep them mulched keep them watered if possible so that reduces the stress actually not to fertilize them too much not to give them too much food because sometimes the fertilizer particularly nitrogen can boost the plant growth and it gets quite lush, and that is more vulnerable to pests. So you don't need plants to have lots of, particularly old flower plant, you know, flowering plants. You don't need to have them fertilized. They race off. You want them to grow at their own rate, and so they are then more resilient to pests should they come along. Aha, uh-huh, that is really interesting. So um, let's talk, you have in the book um, several chapters about several different conditions or, you know, situations. But because um, we've been having the heat and drought until two days ago, and uh, because two years ago we also had a year without much rain, um, let's talk about the heat and drought. Um you talk about um, so so let's start differently. Um, water, of course, is becoming more expensive, and um, I mean we still have water here, but you know a few more years like that, and we will be in a very different situation. So um, let's talk about watering and about various ways of uh, water harvesting. And uh, you have some very innovative ideas there about water. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So when we haven't got enough water, it is important to try and harvest as much of the water that's falling onto your surfaces um, and running off. Although I do know in some states in the US, you're not allowed to harvest certain amount of water that falls on your own property. Absolutely um, ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I will mention that because I think places like Utah and others um, do have restrictions. But yeah, you can harvest a phenomenal amount of water for free if you're really um, switched on. So water barrels, rain barrels are so important um, to catch that water um, and to have what we call diverters that take the water from the downpipes and pipe it off to where you're collecting the water. So you can collect quite a lot of water quite quickly. If you had a new build house or a new garden, I think now I would be tempted to dig out a space where I would bury a large rainwater tank so that I can have my own store. And failing that, um, I have what we call a dipping pond, which catches the water off a barn. And it is just literally um, a rectangular structure, quite deep, 
lined with bricks, uh, concrete blocks and waterproofed. And it basically just catches water. It's not for wildlife. It's not for anything else other than a water store. And I use that to catch about 3,000 litres of water. That is great. It gets me through most of the summer. And I like it because it's really quick. Because when we come to watering, I don't use a water um, watering hose because I don't want to water parts of the garden that don't need it. So I collect with buckets um, and I water direct onto my plants and a dipping tank or a pond or any other structure that has a lot of water in it is very easy to pop your bucket or watering can in and it fills up instantly no hanging around by the tap waiting for things to fill and then I can drench my plants so for me with watering I'm a little bit mean um, I'm it's, it's tough love you don't want to water your plants too much which sounds a bit dull but if you water them too much and too superficially like too little water but too frequently then the roots are tempted to run towards the top of the soil rather than grow down so with my bucket of water i can actually give the plant a real drenching so the soil gets waterlogged and the water percolates down into the root zone keeping those roots deep down and then if I haven't mulched, I'd add some mulch on just after I've watered it so that it's covered by the soil, the soil is covered and the water doesn't evaporate quickly. Mm-hmm. And it can be easy. I mean, at this time of year, if you are cutting your lawns, mowing your lawns, you could use dried lawn clippings to do a quick mulch around the plant that you've just watered. And that will keep that water in the soil. So I water infrequently, but plentiful when I do it in the hopes that that will get the plants through and then I'm I tend to water in the morning so the plants don't get stressed during the day watering waiting for their water Um, but you could water in the evening both times are good because temperatures are lower and you won't have so much evaporating before it's had a chance to get to your plant roots Mm -hmm. Um, and then think about shade because if you are having hot gardens and things, plants like shade as well. So you may want to shade your plants. And going forward, you may want to think about growing taller plants that will cast shade on some of your more vulnerable plants um, that are less able to cope with dry conditions. So there's all sorts of little things we can do um, in the garden. So if you grow these taller plants and they shade the smaller plants, um, do the plants still get enough sun? which is another necessary ingredient? Yeah, it's, it's, so it's one of those things you have to sort of balance out. Um, for vegetables, for example, um, I will often grow um, sunflowers, uh, tall beans, so they will cast a light dapple shade over some of the things like spinach or squash, which are less able to cope with lack of water. Um, and increasingly, I'm thinking when I plan my beds in in spring about what I'm going to be growing vegetable-wise, I'm mixing it up and putting some of these tall, if I think it's going to be hot, um, planning for the heat is to cast some shade. But I have also seen people um, take canvas or other awnings to cover their vegetable beds during the heat of the day <laughs> just to keep the sun off them. Um, so the plants survive and don't transpire as much, so don't lose as much water from their leaves um, as they might do if they weren't shaded and the shade can be removed. So little things like that. Um, and then the other thing I will mention is sort of the old sort of traditional ideas that we cover in the book. Um, I mentioned Olas um, containers, which um, are underground water containers, usually made of terracotta, something that is permeable. And it's an old traditional technique, but it's coming back into fashion. And I take a small terracotta um, plant pot. I stuff up the hole at the bottom um, so that it can't leak through the bottom straight away. And it's not glazed. So it's just basic terracotta clay. And I bury that, put a lid over the top, fill it with water, put the lid on. And that will then slowly percolate out of the terracotta container into the surrounding soil. And interestingly, plants that grow quite close to that will actually grow their roots towards that source of water. And that's one way of topping up a a bed or a large container 
Um, you can get a lot of water in quite quickly and then you pop the lid back on and let it do its own thing. And um, that way the water is kept at the right level in the soil for as long as possible. So again, avoiding the stress, we're trying to keep the water levels more consistent rather than one extreme to the other, which the plants don't like. Yeah, and that was one thing that um, I had I had not heard before I uh, read your book, and um, I love the idea. I'll do that next year. Um, but it's it's it is an ancient way of watering, isn't it? And um, you have some you you look in the book at several um, old ways of doing things that. Um, might be very helpful nowadays. Uh, do you want to talk about some others? Yeah, so um, we we have things called waffle gardens, which are really fun. And again, these are from native um, indigenous peoples down from Arizona and places, obviously got used to, to growing without much water. And these are really useful when that heavy rain comes. So a waffle garden is so cool because when you look at waffles, when you make them in a waffle maker you get those little ridges um, and so what you're making with a waffle garden is you're digging out the middle and creating a bund or a little wall around the plot and you could have several of those over the whole area and then when it rains those little buns keep the water in that area so the water doesn't run off and then it soaks into the ground and that is a way of making sure that the soil where you're growing things has more water doesn't disappear off down the path onto the road. Um, they take a bit of digging. I did do them one year and they're quite fiddly to make. Um, but actually it was well worth it because you'd only have to water them once a week, bucket of water in there. The water is held in place really well and the plants love it. And uh, it all seems to work quite well. So you, if you've got a large flat area, then a waffle garden could be a new idea for 2024. Yeah, yeah. Well, my guest is Sally Morgan. She's the co-author with Kim Stoddard of The Climate Change Garden, down-to-earth advice for growing a resilient garden. And if you have uh, questions for Sally, you're welcome to join us at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also join us on social media, at Word Talk, on Twitter, or a public affair on Facebook. So speaking of Kim, um, Sally, you have um, like a short uh, case study of Kim's garden and um, how she made it in a severe drought without basically watering. Um, it, I, I, I was left hungry reading that. I wanted to know more how she did it. W- would you please tell us? Yeah, so... Kim has um, a garden um, in West Wales. It's quite high up. It has a lot of wind, gets a lot of rain uh, in winter um, and normally is quite wet in summer as well. Wet West Wales. Um, But she has suffered from drought in a few years. And her main problem that she's now experiencing, which has made her quite a resilient gardener, is that she's on a private well so her water comes from a private well rather than on main supply um, because she's quite a remote part of the country and a few years ago when we had our first drought in 2018 um, her well dried up so she had to have water tanked in and I'm sure that's quite a common occurrence in parts of Wisconsin and places where people have private water and so that really focused her mind as to how she was going to keep the water in the ground so it isn't it isn't rocket science it is actually literally mulching and and watering sensibly so what she's found is that um, she's growing plants that can cope with um, drought so she's not necessarily growing plants which need a lot of water but she's also doing what I've explained earlier she's watering heavily every so often rather than giving small amounts of water um, every day um, she's giving uh, lots of mulching to keep that water in. And then in places like her polytunnel, where, um, hoop house, where it gets quite hot, the same with greenhouses and things like that. Again, she's got very heavily mulched beds and she waters deep into that water, into that bed um, and, and allows that water to stay there. So she's minimizing that. 
She's also using what we call grey water, which is water from washing up, washing machines, um, baths, um, anything other than the toilet. And that is perfectly adequate to use on the garden. It's got a bit of soap in it or detergent, but that's perfectly fine um, to use on beds. So she's catching that water and, and using that to water her plants, other than perhaps um, an edible plant that she's not going to cook. So any of the salad leaves she'd use um, potable fresh water, but any of her plants that she's going to cook, then they'll get some grey water. So she's not wasting any water. Um, and so she's watering sensibly uh, morning and evening. Um, and again, Tick Kim is very good on the tough love approach. Mm-hmm. So it's okay to use soap water? On plants? Yep. I, that's something yep. that they have not done because it doesn't yeah, sound we, right to me. <laughs> um, we call it grey water yeah. um, and it's literally water that has been used for washing up. Um, and so I'm sensible about how I use it. Um, I wouldn't put it on um, plants like salads that aren't going to be washed, but it's fine for your perennial beds and your flower beds because you're never going to be eating those. The soap, um, nowadays, they're biodegradable soaps um, and so easily broken down by microbes in the soil. Um, I wouldn't necessarily spray them over the plants because you don't want the soapy water on the surface of the leaves. So it's watering by bucket straight onto the soil where the plant roots are rather than spraying it over the plants. But yeah, it's it's a quite a recommended way now in the UK where we get shortages of water. Yeah, I see. Definitely, yeah, you could use it on plant on on flowers and and such. And um, I'll add, I'm originally from Israel, where there's drought fairly regularly, and my mother was a gardener. And uh, what she did was have buckets in the shower, and <laughs> you know, just fill them with water naturally, and then um, use them. So you also mentioned uh, pre-sprouting seeds as um, something to do in uh, dry and drought conditions. Explain that. Yeah, because um, obviously germinating plants, they need the water. So what we've found is that if you germinate them on a piece of kitchen roll or something like that, um, mix them up with a little bit of starchy mix. You can actually spread this gel um, in the ground where you would normally have sown your um, seeds, but the seeds have already started to germinate, so they don't need quite so much water. And one of the riskiest times is to sow your seed and then have a week of dry weather and you're not watering them. And sometimes if you're watering them, the poor old seeds get washed away. So this pre-germination idea um, avoids waste of seed as well because you won't be using quite so much seed because you can see what you've got. Um, and I make up this sort of starchy mix and I put it into what would be um, an icing tube for icing a cake. And I just um, basically squidge that out into, um, I make a, a small seed furrow for my seeds and I've got this squidgy mix and I squeeze it out as if I'm piping icing on a cake um, and cover that up and I get my seeds better distributed. They're already pre-germinated so they don't need quite so much water. There's no waste, particularly with those expensive seeds and you haven't got many of them. Um, and I find that they germinate more quickly as well or they start growing more quickly um, and altogether quite an effective way um, during drought months. Mm-hmm. And of course, you mentioned um, vegetables or plants that are um, dry tolerant, that are drought tolerant. Um, what what are they? And how um, do we it, know? Yeah, it's tricky. And it depends which part of the states you're in, obviously, as to what you grow. But what we were finding over here last year, because we had the bad drought in Europe, um, that certain things like pole beans didn't do as well maybe as a French bean. So it was far more tolerant um, of the drought conditions. Um, squash particularly can be quite poor in hot weather and require a lot of water. Um, but other things are surprisingly resilient. So I found that beets did quite well under drought conditions. Um, my brassicas were a bit mixed, um, but we had amazing tomato crops last year. 
The other thing that we might be trying is to think of things which are more Mediterranean, so zucchinis, um, aubergines, or eggplants. Um, and actually, interestingly, I've been growing chickpeas, um, which are very Mediterranean, and, and they love the dry, hot weather. Um, last year, I've grown them for many years, but last year I had the best crop ever. Um, and I think out of an area, one of my beds, um, they're quite small peas, but I, I picked about a kilo's worth, so a couple of pounds worth um, in weight of chickpeas, which I allow to dry and I use for the rest of the winter. Um, and I also grow, grow soybeans, which again, love the heat, although they require a little bit more water. Um, and again, those are quite good. I harvest those green as edamame beans, but I could leave them on the plant um, as dry soybeans. So we can start looking to something that's a little bit more Mediterranean or um, for you sort of down in the southeast, more Florida and Georgia than Wisconsin. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and all these beans uh, also provide nitrogen to the soil and are good that way. So it's good um, the next year to plant their things that love nitrogen, like greens and such, yeah? Um, yes and no. Um, okay. I know yeah, you're quite correct when you say that um, peas and beans are legumes. They, nit they fix nitrogen in the soil. Um, and traditionally, we should have a soil rotation where we would follow them with brassicas and other greedy plants. But actually, um, I, I, I talk to a lot of organic growers um, who rely on um, natural processes rather than fertilizer. And uh, one of our sort of gurus over here um, told me many years ago, he said, well, you don't think they, they accumulate much nitrogen, do you? He said, because you're busy picking the peas and beans. So the plant's not going to have much to give back to the soil because you're harvesting from it. So he didn't think there would be much benefit. So what he does is actually grow clover under his plants and they will nitrogen fix and they will improve the soil. So he said peas and beans don't actually offer much back to the soil. But if you were to under sow with clover, then yes, that would be a really good way of naturally boosting your nitrogen in your soil for your following crops, traditionally, usually brassicas. Okay, so I uh, planted uh, clover, I think, two seasons ago. And um, I had an amazing um, harvest of um, strawberries, for example. And the clover is still growing here and there, you know, in various beds. And now I've been pulling it out because it's taking a lot of space that, you know, where I want to plant other things. And I've been wondering, as I pull it out, do I pull the nitrogen out of the soil too? Or, and of course, I leave them, I leave them lying, I leave them as mulch, basically. But I do have to pull at least some of the roots. They, they create these really amazing... Um, networks of roots and it's impossible to plant if you don't so um yeah so i don't know what what do you know about all of that um so yeah it is tricky finishing off i mean these are sort of examples of what we call cover crops um which are there to fill the gaps between crops to add biomass uh, nitrogen to the soil and organic use uh, growers do this a lot um, clover can be tricky because it is as you say it hangs in there and it carries on so what I was told to do was to put some cardboard down and that would kill off the clover which you would then leave as a mulch on the surface of the soil if you could do that amongst the plants that you were doing um, but then there are other plants which are quite good to grow as cover crops which will be killed off by the frost in winter. So I think you have Phacelia in North America, which is a little purple flower, a great pollinator. It's one of the best plants for adding bulk to the soil. Um, and it grows very quickly in a couple of months, and then it will die off and you can cover it up or chop it off or the frost will get to it. And it has this lovely um, mass that left on the surface of the soil into which you can plant. Um, and there's other things like buckwheat and annual ryegrass that you can grow and they're not going to be there for long because they'll die over winter. So 
all of those cover crops or green manures, as they're also called, um, would add bulk and nutrients to your soil in your rotations. So um, there's there's all sorts of things you can do. But what I love with something like zucchini and squash, when I've got a lot of space on the ground, I sow white clover um, and then I plant my squash into that. And then when I remove my squash at the end of the season, the clover grows on over winter and then I cover it with cardboard the next spring and then it's ready to use for something else. Aha, uh-huh. okay, simple enough. We have um, a caller for you, Sally, Doug from um, Sun Prairie. Hi, Doug, you're on the air. Uh, good morning. Uh, yeah, I have a good way to, to collect water when it's dry. Uh-huh. Uh, I run, I run a uh, dehumidifier in my basement and I keep my watering can in my laundry, laundry sink. So when the dehumidifier fills up, I just put that water in my watering can and then uh, I can take it up and water my hanging plants. Yeah, I've been doing it. I've been doing it all summer now. There you go. I got one <laughs> question though about my hanging plants is I can't get them to keep flowering. Like, you know, I get them, I buy them and they have beautiful flowers and then, then I get nothing all the rest of the summer. What do I got to do to get my flowering plants to keep flowering? And I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Doug. Um, hi there, Doug. Um, I love the idea of using all that water. Brilliant. Um, I think if you're getting a good flowering and then it dies off, it might be because the plants are lacking nutrients, particularly not nitrogen, um, but P and K, so phosphorus and potassium. And so you might want to mix into your medium that you've got in your hanging baskets. You might want to mix some slow release Um, nutrients in there so that that helps the plants to continue because flowering plants are very greedy um, and they like their um, P and K, their phosphorus and potassium to keep flowering um, and so you don't want green growth, you don't want nitrogen in there but that's what I would do um, just to keep them going for an extra couple of months. It's basically, I suspect, that the potting medium that you're using has just run out, it's just exhausted of nutrients. I, I also um, would suggest, Doug, if, you, if you're not deadheading your flowers, do that, and then the uh, plant will create more flowers. Um, yeah, Sally, correct? <laughs> yeah, I would do that too. Um, I'm not very good at that, though. <laughs> I forget. <laughs> oh, I'm really good at it. <laughs> I just go out and pull the heads. Um, deadheading, of course, means you pull the dead flowers off of your plant. And then since the plant's job is to recreate itself through seeds, if, if it cannot make seeds, it'll make more flowers in the hope of making more seeds. Um, am I correct with that, Sally? You're a botanist, yeah. I'm not. <laughs> yeah, okay, absolutely. okay. And we have another question from a listener who's apparently not on um, the air. Any idea what to do with all my mint? I, <laughs> I planted it amidst many other herbs in my garden. Mistake. And it's totally edging out my other herbs. But a larger question, what the hell do I do with all this mint? All right. Um, well, yes, um, mint is a real bug and um, it will compete with everybody. Um, so I keep mine in containers. I'm quite a mint fanatic. I have about mm, seven or eight different types of mint, anything from basil Ooh. mint to Moroccan mint, um, strawberry mint and chocolate mint. And I have them all in a large container. Um, actually, I just use plastic containers. Um, and when their roots appear, I just chop them out. Um, so that keeps them under control, although you do have to remember to water them. And as to using them, well, I love mint tea. So I will, at this time of year, I'm harvesting fresh mint for my tea. And I've also got a dehydrator. So I'll put my fresh mint shoots in the dehydrator to get dried mint for the rest of winter. And that keeps in. I have a little um, vacuum pack machine to keep my dried mint really fresh for my mint tea over winter. Mm-hmm. And uh, my suggestion also, if you cook and if you eat meat and if you like lamb, mm-hmm. uh, I make lamb with mint and it's it's such an amazing 
mix. Have you, have you had that, Sally? Yes. Yeah, I used mint. To, um, it's so good, lamb. isn't it? Yeah. 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 And you can cook it with other things too, and um, you can mix it with other herbs to make even more interesting teas. So there's a lot to do with mint. I, I also, I have a lot and I um, harvest it. So Sally, I, I want to get to also flooding because that's the other thing that might happen here. But before that, Um, I want to make sure that I ask you about something that you don't, I don't think you have in the book, and I would suggest that you add to the next edition. Um, I think it's very much part of climate change, and that is how to preserve the food, because if you're a gardener, you always have more than you can use, and I'm sure you give some to food pantries and to friends and all that, and you still have too much, and so you preserve it. So uh, the ways I preserve mostly are, th- are by freezing and pickling, but the question is... What happens if there's no electricity, which is more and more likely to happen because of climate change? I dry um, and that you know some of the things that I dry I use dried, but some of them I want to rehydrate. What happens if you don't have water coming out of your tap? Canning, of course, seems to be something that we can still do, but I don't really like canned food so much because it's mostly mushy and um, sometimes um, it's no good when you open it. So what, what, what uh, as we think about what's coming and we want to continue preserving our food, what do you think are the best ways to do it? Oh, that's a really good point. And no, we didn't cover that in the book. Um, I do a lot of preserving. Like you, I have gluts that I need to deal with, um, particularly things like cucumbers. Um, and so I do a lot of pickling. Um, it's one of those things which um, actually you can do cold pickles as well. So you don't need that heat to pr- produce the hot pickle. Um, and actually, I think the Israelis are really good about pickling stuff. I've got a lot of recipes um, for traditional recipes um, with some cold pickles. So I, we, we do a lot. Um, I think fermented foods are useful and sauerkrauts and the like. And I think health-wise, um, that fermentation is proving to be so good for us now as well. So I think those types of things will be important in the future as well. Um, and you're quite right. I mean, at the moment, uh, I have a freezer and we've had intermittent power this week, um, not for climate change. They've just been replacing some power lines, but my, my poor old freezer has been flickering in and out. So um, power would become more expensive in the future to do that as well. So Yes, I like simple ideas of dehydrating and pickling to, to do most things that we, we preserve for, for the future. But I just like eating the same thing over summer. I will eat salads, salads, salads. And then when we get to autumn, fall, I switch to soups and I just use what's available. And we have soup every lunchtime until we've got something different. So eating with the seasons, I think, is increasingly important. Yeah, I've, um, I've had to train myself to do that um, because we are used to eating all kinds of food, right? We can get everything from the supermarket. And, and, but now I'm like, okay, it's greens now. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> greens and peas and, and um, uh, garlic scapes until the next things come in. And then it's all beans and, and so on and so forth. So... Yeah. Okay. Um, so we have only about 10 minutes left. And let's talk about what happens if we get too much water. Uh, what if there's flooding, which, again, totally can happen here, totally can happen anywhere nowadays. Um, how do we prepare for that? Yeah, and it's, it's something we really have to be aware of. I think there were six cities in North America last year in 2022 that had more than six, seven inches of rain in a 24-hour period, uh, which is frightening amounts. Um, the things worries me mostly in our gardens, if I just focus on gardens because it's such a big topic, uh, and this is where I think communities have such a big role to play, is I look at my garden and I like to think 
permeable. I want surfaces in my own space that allow the water to soak into the ground. Because I think one of our biggest problems, particularly in urban areas, is we have such a hard landscaped cityscape. Um, we've got tarmac, concrete, um, large amounts of roof, and all the water flows straight off there into the drains and, and probably leads to sewer outflows and pollution in general. So I think importantly for every gardener to have the most permeable surfaces in their spaces possible. So things like gravel paths or crushed aggregate paths um, so that water can soak straight through. Um, and the landscaping companies are helping us now because there are and there's a new generation of materials that we can use um, to help. So we've got new rules in this country about sustainable drainage systems where we have things called permeable mortar, which means that the mortar that you use on brick paths, uh, on concrete, on um, paviors and stone paths and things, it's actually permeable. So it keeps the stones or the bricks together but the water, if you were to put a bucket of water onto it, the, the, the surface would allow the water to go straight through rather than running off. So my message to everybody in sort of about extreme flooding is to, to be able to get as much into the ground. And the other funny thing, which is really effective, and I can't believe how effective it is, we've all got rain barrels, but during winter, they're all full of water. So when we know that a heavy storm is arriving and we're going to have huge amount of rainfall, we should get out there and empty our rain barrels the day before the storm arrives. So we've all got empty rain barrels. And then we've all got tens of gallons of capacity to hold water. And we can hold that first deluge of water back to slow that water down. And that will give our drains a breathing space to cope with the water that's running off the roads so if every household had a rain barrel or more and they emptied them all out just before the rain came we could actually deal with a lot of this extreme weather flooding um, at minimal cost and at minimal effort to ourselves um, mm -hmm. and over here now one of our water companies is developing an app that is going to tell you to get outside and empty your rain barrels um, so that it can save that water. Mm -hmm. Well, we have another caller for you with an interesting uh, point and a question. Brian, um, hi, you're on the air. Uh, thanks. Uh, so I was just going to quickly add, and by the way, thanks for the show. Great, fascinating subject. I was just going to say to the subject of drought resiliency, um, I've been kind of paying more attention to the edible uh, wild, uh, you know, weeds, I guess most people call them, in that just kind of per, uh, volunteer in the garden. Um, examples, I guess, would be lamb's quarters, which you can use the same way you use spinach. And they're even now, they're not bitter. We've been eating them every day. Minimal, minimal watering. Uh, purslane is a great... Uh, thing to add to salads and it's a succulent so it's been uh, making it just fine prickly lettuce is another thing that just grows in the garden without me doing anything and it's like over three feet tall um, and I haven't watered it a bit so I don't know I would just encourage people to uh, look at what you're pulling before you pull it and maybe you don't want to pull it yeah yeah great um, great point Brian thank you um... And prickly lettuce is actually a um, a medicinal herb, um, so which is something we haven't talked about at all. But um, also very interesting. Sally, what what do you have to say to Brian? Oh, I'm delighted. For, right, that idea came up. Um, I don't call weeds weeds anymore because I think you know they have such an important role to play in our garden and perennial vegetables that are there all year round. Um, are one of the ways to create more resilient veg plot. So I've got lots of things that I don't have to do anything to other than pick leaves. And, and some of those are, 
you know, what we would call weeds that have a very important role to play. And and I like allowing the weeds, the low-growing weeds, I don't remove anymore. They're covering my soil up. It's a lap, it's what I would call a living mulch. And I've got lots of little tiny weed called Scarlet Pimpernel. I don't know whether you get that over there. Amazing mulch, um, lovely flowers and low growing protects my soil. So I think we do have to look in, you know, um, at these new, a new way of looking at plants in the garden to see what we can harvest to eat um, and just let them thrive in places that they like to grow in. Yeah, like Brian said, we don't have to put any work into them. They're just there. Use them. <laughs> they are good. Uh, we have so little time. I wanted to ask you about um, really important stuff, uh, the future pests and diseases as the climate changes. We're going to, we already are having uh, new um, insects that are coming in and, and probably other pests too. And like I said at the beginning of the show, um, the rabbits and chipmunks and voles have been just really terrible pests this year. We don't really have much time, but, um, you know, if you can say something that can help us within the next two and a half minutes or so, I'd appreciate it. Um, yeah, no, we will be faced with new pests. We're getting them over here. We're get, you're getting them in the States, particularly things, beetles, Japanese beetles, longhorn beetles. So um, I think for me, the way to cope with that, you're never going to manage to eradicate them. We have to live with them. But I think to have biodiversity in your garden spaces, to have the most varied amount of crops, and ornamentals and to have as many natural predators as possible in your garden that you bring in through um, flowers, plants for pollinators will put you in a best position to cope with the newcomers that might try and devastate your crops. So trying to get your natural predators on top by having a lovely biodiverse um, place for them to find and then you can hold them there because they can find lots of food and and do the work for you so yeah look after your wildlife look after your biodiversity is absolutely key to climate change yeah i have a quick story um i had aphids on my cherry tree and they were they were destroying it the the leaves were curling and i'm like what am i gonna do and i saw these creatures on the leaves which um i you know at, at first i thought they were responsible for that and then eventually i realized that they have the same colors and um um pay, um they kind of looked a little bit like uh ladybugs which i realized when i suddenly saw a ladybug and yeah there were hundreds of ladybugs on that tree and they ate all the aph aphids so nature at work a wonderful thing and it's very key you raised a good point there you need to know the different stages in the life cycle you can all identify ladybugs but you're right can you identify the larvae which are just as important uh, as the adults obviously so know know your life cycles know your insects yeah yeah I, I i admit that at first i tried to kill them and thankfully it was very hard so i left them alone and <laughs> And then I had all these ladybugs. So, Sally Morgan, a botanist, writer, editor, um, editor of Organic Farming magazine, and a writer together with Kim Stoddard of the Climate Change Garden, down-to-earth advice for growing a resilient garden. Thank you so much for joining us. It, it was delightful to have you. Lovely. No, it's been a good fun. Some lovely questions. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to Shelly and Summer and Patty. I'm STD Noor. See you next week. Bye-bye. We come and listen and support it. Live and direct, we come and never pre-recorded. With information that will never be reported. Disregard the mainstream. Media distorted. We come and listen and support it.